Now, starting off with our introductions, uh, on my immediate left is outgoing Republican State Senator Bob Dool, who's the Vice Chairman of the Senate Health and Human Services Committee. Uh, he's been a board-certified family physician in his hometown of Greenville for 25 years. Uh, Dool has been a strong proponent and author of measures to restrict abortion in Texas, including requiring clinics here to meet the standards of ambulatory surgical centers, uh, and ensuring that no Planned Parenthood clinics receive state funding here in Texas for women's health. Dual has been the leading Republican voice for restoring budget cuts to women's health care in the Senate and has argued often against his GOP colleagues that cutting family planning would lead to unwanted pregnancies. Next to him, State Representative Carol Alvarado is a Democrat who's represented Houston in the Texas House since 2008. She serves as Vice Chairwoman of the Urban Affairs Committee and previously served on the Public Health Committee. Uh, Alvarado is a fierce advocate for abortion rights and made many legislators squirm back in 2011 when she carried a vaginal sonogram probe with her to the microphone in the House to make her case against a bill requiring women seeking abortions to have a sonogram 24 hours ahead of the procedure. State Representative Donna Dukes is a Democrat from Austin who's served in the Texas House since 1994. She chairs the House Select Committee on Child Protection and is vice chairwoman of the budget subcommittee that oversees health care financing here in Texas. She was a vocal opponent of successful GOP-led efforts to cut funding for family planning during the 2011 legislative session, and she pushed hard for that money to be restored in some capacity in 2013. State Representative Susan King is a Republican from Abilene who served in the Texas House since 2006. King is the owner and director of an ambulatory surgical center where she also works as a surgical nurse. She chairs the House Select Committee on Healthcare Education as well. Uh, King is pro-life, uh, but she has taken some votes protested by the anti-abortion community here, including amendments that would have allowed women to have abortions after 20 weeks of gestation in cases of rape and incest, and exempted clinics from certain ambulatory surgical center requirements. Uh, she's argued that the procedure is better left as one between a woman and her doctor. And then finally, Molly White uh, is an unopposed Republican candidate for the Texas House, which makes her a, a, a legislator-elect. Uh, she'll represent Temple in the legislature in 2015. She's the legislative director for Operation Outcry, which is an anti-abortion speakers bureau of sorts, uh, and she founded Women for Life International, which is a group that's dedicated to, quote, uh, defending the biblical worldview of life, motherhood, marriage, and families. That group's website calls reproductive rights, family planning, and safe sex the, quote, greatest hoax ever devised against women and families. Now, White's views come from her own experience. She had two abortions years ago that she's spoken about publicly, and she said that they led to drug and alcohol problems, suicidal thoughts, and also medical challenges. So obviously we have a fascinating group of folks here. Uh, let's start off uh, by talking about the most recent news, House Bill 2, uh, the 2013 abortion restriction bill that would lead to the closure of, of most of the state's clinics. Uh, is still tied up in court. It's been ruled unconstitutional by a federal district judge here in Texas, uh, headed to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, waiting for a ruling in New Orleans, which is a much more conservative court traditionally. What do we expect is next for this legislation? Uh, Representative Alvarado, you want to kick us sure. off here? Well, hopefully the uh, legislation will be ruled unconstitutional. I think it was a very far-reaching bill that has led to many clinics uh, that women were being able to go to to get not abortions but just family planning services and if you look at what's taken place since many of these clinics have closed um, and the other side may celebrate this we have seen a decrease in abortions I think 13 percent over Texas statewide and 21 percent in the Rio Grande Valley but that's not that's not I don't see that as a good thing it's not like well we put more cops on the street so crime has gone down I think that this has led to more unsafe uh, abortions that women are seeking. This bill has done more to hurt women than any other piece of legislation in Texas history. Women who would otherwise be able to go into clinics to get cancer screenings, uh, birth control, now have lost access to affordable health care. Mm -hmm. What about you? It sounds like you have a different take. Do you think this bill has been a victory? I think so. I think it's something that women such as myself uh, who had abortions in the past have fought definitely uh, hard for because if you go into an abortion clinic, you want to make sure that they have all of the equipment they need in case an emergency arises. And I can bring out a picture, if I brought her with me, of a young woman who died on an abortion table. And she went into cardiac arrest during the procedure. She was over anesthetic anesthetized. Anesthetized. Yeah, that's it. 
And so the doctor had no equipment or no training in how to protect her. And so at 21 years old, she is dead, and so is her baby. So I think anything the state can do to make sure that all clinics that perform abortions are, have the best safety standards and medical standards is the best thing for women who are seeking an abortion. Well, let's, let's look into that issue in particular. Let's look deeper into the legislative efforts of the 2013 session, which, just as a reminder, ban abortion after 20 weeks of gestation here in Texas, require abortion doctors to have admitting privileges at hospitals within 30 miles of their clinic, and also require abortion clinics to meet the much higher and, in some cases, more expensive standards of ambulatory surgical centers. Representative King, obviously, you have a great deal of experience with these uh, types of surgical centers. Do you believe that they are necessary to perform safe and healthy abortions in Texas? As the only owner of a ambulatory surgical center and the only person in the house that's a practicing nurse in a surgery center, I do have a different opinion in some ways. What I found in the research, uh, looking at the abortion clinics, I've never been to one, I uh, just have not, I found that according to the Department of State Health Services, they're more stringently surveyed than an ASC. So to me, that was a little bit confusing. I felt that perhaps if these clinics are this problematic, and I'm not sure about the life safety, that doesn't seem logical at all, that any physician would not be able to attend to a patient under those circumstances. But nevertheless, I mean, you're, you're you're showing me that. And certainly in any medical case, there can be problems. But I felt that perhaps maybe a better way would have to be put stronger, stronger, uh, sanctions against maybe an abortion clinic or other ways to make sure they uh, looked at the health safety of the patient. I wasn't sure, and I still feel, that it might be too much to add the standards of an ambulatory surgical center. It wouldn't hurt the patient, but certainly it is a tremendous regulatory addition as well as expense. And so uh, that that was the majority rule. I did vote for the bill. But I did feel like the uh, details of the ASC requirements needed to be brought forth, and I did do that. Senator Duell, you are not going to be in the legislature this upcoming session. As you look back at this legislation, do all of these elements seem necessary, seem crucial to you, the 20-week ban, the admitting privileges rule, the ambulatory surgical centers? Well, there there were good reasons. I I want to just kind of pick up where Representative King uh, left off. Uh, And I was the author of of the... original bill during the regular session to make abortion clinics meet those standards. No one wanted to compromise. Uh, We were willing, some of us anyway, to sit down and and perhaps formulate uh, some rules for abortion clinics, much like the state of Maryland did. But when you started addressing that, it was all or nothing on both sides. So there are, unfortunately, I mean, I have a medical clinic and hospitals all of us in healthcare, no matter what you do, we are overregulated and required to do things above and beyond which most of us think that we should have to do, uh, starting with medical records and going on from there for facilities and all of that. So given the fact that some abortion clinics have proven not to be uh, of a standard that would protect the patient, we erred on the side of the patient by requiring the ambulatory surgical clinics. Other states pro-life movement has been willing to compromise and perhaps look at some of those uh, over uh, standard type areas, but there was no room for compromise here. No one wanted to compromise and address that issue. So, yeah, I was going to say, as far as those ambulatory surgical centers are concerned, you know, I, I think the argument was that these clinics, the existing clinics, were very unsafe. Uh, we did a pretty, the Some. Tribune did a pretty extensive review of, of complaints and violations and found virtually nothing that was related to the health and safety or w- of women. Did you all use that guidance or those reports when you decided to pass this legislation? No, because they're not entirely accurate because we don't have access to records of those clinics like you do for my clinic which is under scrutiny from Medicare and Medicaid and, and various insurance uh, areas. So, uh, you know, we felt, I mean, you know, the extreme, on both sides, the extremes really didn't want any compromise with that. But there are clinics where there have been bad outcomes, substandard physicians, in my opinion, and, and that was the reason that we did this. There are many abortion clinics that have already met those surgical, ambulatory surgical center clinics standards, uh, why did they do that? They obviously saw a need 
to reach that uh, pinnacle of, of medical care. And we felt like, well, if we can't get compromise, uh, we've got to do something to protect the patients. Jump in here, sure. Well, I, I just wanted to add that I don't, I don't think that taking any precaution when it comes to women's health is unnecessary. I don't think there's a woman in this building who would want to go to a clinic that has substandard care. If she knew that they had an ambulatory center, she would get the best care because abortion is a very violating, a very a intrusive, and a very dangerous procedure. First term, second term is even worse, third term is even more risky. And the data, though, shows a very, very low complication rate for in cases of abortion. I mean, are you re you're refuting those studies? I'm refuting that studies? from personal experience and from the hundreds and hundreds of testimonies that I've heard from women, and not only in the state but around the country. And I have a very dear friend who, after her second term abortion, which it was not one that she consented to, uh, she started hemorrhaging, and they sent her home hemorrhaging. She's 17 years old, didn't know that it was a problem, called the clinic and told them what was happening. They said she was no longer their problem to go to a doctor. You know, why she's still alive today is a miracle, but she's been sterile ever since then. I mean, we're yeah. talking about something that is extremely risky to a woman's health. Whatever we can do to make sure that her health is not at risk, then that's what we need to do. Is this conversation, Representative Dukes, in your mind about women's health, about, or is it about preventing this procedure altogether? I mean, a lot of Republicans have just come out and said, you know, we're trying to restrict this as far as we can so that this procedure does not occur. This discussion is not about women's health. Uh, it has not been about women's health. It has not been about women's safety. Uh, if it were about women's health and safety, then one would ensure, based on historically why a woman's right to choose was established in the first place, would be continuously in place. It is to prevent there from being unsafe backroom abortions that end up sterilizing women. I know many women, many friends, who have had abortions. It is a personality type that would turn to using drugs and alcohol, not the procedure that makes one do that. Furthermore, uh, I, every six months, because I have had uh, issues with um, uterine cancer, I have a uterine biopsy. My OBGYN told me that the uterine biopsy I have in her office is more dangerous than an abortion. So why is it that the requirements for an abortion are more restrictive than the requirements for going to your OBGYN to have a uterine biopsy every six months? It makes no sense. Furthermore, if it was also about women's safety, then this legislature would have ensured that there was ample funding to provide for women's health care, for uterine cancer, breast cancer, for diabetes, for kidney disease, for hypertension, uh, for birth control, for STD screening was made available. But this legislature chose instead to, uh, in, to in order to make sure that they eliminated any funding of abortion with state funds, which, by the way, never occurred because it was not allowed under any of the state's provisions for funding. So the state gave up a nine-to-one match with the federal government that would have made available additional funds for the expansion of women's health care in a growing population. Today, today, the availability of health care for women is at the same level, if not less, than it was in 2010-2011. Now think about that. If this state has grown enough to have four additional congresspersons, that means that we have had over four million people in Texas to expand, and 51% of those are women who are in need. So it's not about health care. It's about a narrow philosophy that doesn't want for abortions to occur. And I know for a fact that one who has an abortion does not have alcohol and drug-related issues. That is a personality type that should have gotten some psychological um, treatment. Yeah. Yeah.
I would, say I would that definitely if you, like to respond to that you, because unless you've had your own abortion, you cannot tell a woman what she feels and what she and if it's a personality. Well, you know what? If it's a personality disorder, you know what? If, let me, if just one hold has on, to I'm say it, if one has to say it, if one has to say it, okay, then fine. To the world, I had an abortion, and I'm not a drug addict, and I'm not an alcoholic. Well, I'm not It's fine for the fireworks to happen up here, but I really would appreciate it if the fireworks were not also happening out there. If you look closely at HB2, look at the language. That bill was designed to take Planned Parenthood out of business. Absolutely. I mean, why sugarcoat it? If you look at the requirements under HB2, that's what it was designed to do. It has nothing to do with women's health. Let's talk quickly. Uh, obviously, abortion has been a big conversation in this gubernatorial race, starting with the filibuster that launched Wendy Davis into the national spotlight, and then more recently coming around to the release of her memoir, where she revealed that she had uh, two terminated pregnancies, uh, one an ectopic and the other for uh, fetal abnormality. Is this, do you all believe that this is a narrative that observers, just, uh, observers find compelling, or is this something that could have a real effect at the ballot box? Huge effect at the ballot box. Women take their health care very seriously, and they take the decision between themselves and their doctors very, very seriously. And for anyone, be it another woman or a man, to get in between the decision, the personal decision that they make, as if a woman does not have the mental fortitude to know what Mm -hmm. she is doing and the decision that she is making is an absolute insult to a woman. It's an insult to a man to tell a man that he doesn't know what he's doing when he's getting ready to have sex. Well, maybe some don't. But uh, that being aside, you know, these women have thought about this. They know what what they are doing when they're making that decision. It is a very serious decision between them and their doctors, and their doctors are trained. And they should not be told how to do their practice because they were never invited to participate, the doctors were not, in any of the decision-making. But you let there be a bill about whether or not we'll have fracking or whether or not there'll be oil drilling or whether or not there'll be some type of oil injection, and we're going to have every single oil company up there to have input. But not when it comes to medical care for women. Well, let's just talk about Planned Parenthood. Personally, they're a nonprofit organization which makes over $1 billion a year in profits. I don't think they need any state funding. I have a nonprofit group, and I don't get state funding. So if we want to talk about Planned Parenthood, let's do. But let me just reiterate. I thought this was a women's health discussion. I separate women's health from abortion. Those are two different topics. If you want to talk about abortion, let's do it. But let's not talk about it under women's health. Because most of the women's health issues, 84% of them, are not reproductive related. A safe abortion is women's health. Let me tell you. Uh, heart disease is the leading cause of women's health issues, and I can go through a whole list. But don't come here and insult me as being ignorant. When I was 21 years old and went to a clinic here in Austin, Texas, I asked what fetal development my baby would be in at nine weeks. You know what they told me? A little dot. Well, you did it twice. You should have done your research. Well, you don't know the second one. I want to. But wait a minute, I'm not finished. And she, I was lied to. I was lied to. I didn't know about fetal development. I asked because I wanted to make an informed choice. And then I asked if there was any health or psychological risks involved with abortion. Again, none whatsoever. Don't worry about it, sweetheart. Your life will be all back together again. It'll be like you're starting your period. You know what I felt violated the worst is because I was lied to. Maybe because you should And have done then your I don't be insulting. No, you're, you're being insulting. insulting. You're I'm, insulting here, I'm here speaking on my personal experience and the women that I've, I've ministered. I would like to bring to. this back to the legislature because all of you sitting up here uh, have, been, have been in the position to vote on these issues or will be going forward. I want to talk about what's next for the legislature when it comes to reproductive health care. Obviously, we've seen in the past sessions um, increased efforts to, to restrict abortion and family planning dollars. Senator Dole, in your experience, what were the items that you talked about previously that you left on the table that we might be able to see in a more conservative, even more conservative Senate in this upcoming session? Well, there's lots of, lots of things on the table. I, I, want to, I would dispute that in uterine, as a physician trained in gynecologic procedures, you delivered lots of babies. I would dispute that an endometrial biopsy is uh, 
more equal to, to an abortion at any stage. But having, having said that, in getting to women's health, because I don't think we're going to change each other's minds about the right to an abortion and, and, and all of that, I, I, I would just go back briefly to the ambulatory <coughs> surgical clinic. There are states, Maryland is one, which has reasonable uh, requirements of abortion centers that exceed today's requirements but are less than ambulatory surgical clinics. Again, in Texas, in the legislature, in the environment that, that we were in, no one wanted to talk about that. But let's go to women's health for a minute on maybe some things that we agree with. One thing that I have tried to do in my 12 years, and I used to run a family planning clinic. I was a medical director for a federally qualified health center. I have always advocated uh, family planning services at, at, with state money. In a perfect world, uh, perhaps state money shouldn't be used for that. But the reality, and a lot of people don't deal in reality, is that if we don't, there are going to be low-income women who get pregnant who do not want to be, and that will either end up in more abortions or it will end up in children on welfare. It's just a reality that we have to, to deal with. As a medical director for a family planning clinic, as a board-certified family physician, I also was seeing family planning clinics uh, I, and somewhere at places like Planned Parenthood, and I'm picking on them for that, but they were just that, family planning clinics. The physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants that were there were not dealing with the entire health spectrum of the patients. And one of the things that we tried to do is to have comprehensive women's health care with the state money that we spend. It can be brought uh, to realization with the same amount of money. And this is something that the abortion clinics have not been willing uh, to do. And we have tried to shift the paradigm to allow the family planning money to go to comprehensive women's health care. Now, granted, and I don't think it's fair to put a blanket uh, description on all pro-life people, nor would I put that on all pro-choice people, but the motivation of many of us who are pro-life was for the betterment of women's health. You can dispute that we're doing it the right way, and I understand that, but it's not fair to say that the things that we've done were not about better women's health. But if it was about better women's health, why in 2011 did you cut family planning dollars by two-thirds? Well, first of all, I didn't want to. Uh, there were some people in, there are some people in the pro-life movement who are against any kind of birth control. And I think they used that as a deflection and putting it into mental health and all of that. But many of us did not want to. I was one of them. Again, in a perfect world, perhaps the state shouldn't have to spend that money. But the real world is that we actually save money by doing that and, and, and improve lives. One of the things, though, again, that I, since day one in 2003 when I took office, was to use that money for comprehensive health care. Young women in their 20s, especially African-American women and Latino women, have issues of hypertension and diabetes. And what I saw as a practicing family physician were women who went to straight family planning clinics, and not always at, at, at clinics that do abortion, that were just told to go elsewhere uh, for those problems. And elsewhere was nowhere for those folks. And so we have tried to address women's health. And again, you're absolutely right about the cuts. I opposed them. And I would continue, I would hope in the next legislative session, I'll be in private practice of medicine, but I would hope that the new people coming in address the reality of, of providing comprehensive women's health care and realize that it's a good thing for the state and it's a good thing for women. And I, I do want to talk to the two of you briefly just about, you know, whether obviously the dollars were restored for comprehensive care, family planning dollars were sort of woven into uh, a kind of women's health services in full. That money is more than what was in the budget before, but is that money being used in your minds in the appropriate way? Well, I, th I mean, we restored a bit. Um, it wasn't enough. So hopefully we can go back next session and restore some of that funding. If you look at the number of women that are now out of uh, access to affordable contraception or family planning services, it's well over a million women, Texas women. And if just half of those women uh, become pregnant, you look at the price tag of a Medicaid birth, it's about $11,000. So that is about over a $9 billion hit to, bu to the budget. 
And the cost for contraception is just a fraction of that. So I don't, even if you were just to look at this issue based on economics and fiscal responsibility, it falls short. First, let me uh, say that it is about eliminating uh, just the right to have an abortion. Because if it was about health care, Planned Parenthood wouldn't have been targeted because less than 3% mm -hmm. of what Planned Parenthood uh, does provide is abortion. 97% is about health care to low-income women. And the women's health care program that was defunded by this legislature in, uh, in 2011 and 2013 um, it was to ensure that women who were low income between the ages of 18 and 44, but for the fact that they were not pregnant, would have qualified for Medicaid, but they were without health insurance. So many of them, their first access to health care for preventative health care was by going to one of these clinics. But because a request was made to the Attorney General's office for an affiliation definition of a, an abortion provider and whether or not their status under IRS would make them also an abortion provider, it wiped out not only Planned Parenthood but also every single health care organization that was providing women's health care throughout the network. That, that in and of itself means that health care was not the primary issue. One. Two, I want to reiterate, every six months I go for uterine biopsy and I have to sign a form that states that your uterus could be perforated. And my doctor, my OBGYN, who is trained and happens to be the chief of surgery for a major hospital and the chief of surgery for a fertility center, who happened to do jointly the reconstruction of my uterus, both told me that that procedure was more invasive then the abortion, and every time I have it, I take the chance of a perforated uterus. I want to, the two, we have two Republican legislators who are going to be serving in the House together. I want to talk specifics. What kinds of legislation do you anticipate you might file related to women's health or abortion issues in the legislature in 2015? I'd like to say that I have served on Article Two. That's the Healthcare Division and Appropriations. I don't we know. We served together. What, yes, we have. I don't know what my assignment will be this time. Uh, we're a little bit different from the Senate. We don't know ahead of time going in in most of the cases. So, I, I do feel that there's probably a real need not only for potentially more funding, but also the organization of the funding. It's very difficult now, I think, for people to figure out which door they're supposed to go into. For healthcare, and right. I think five that's different confusing. women's health programs. Yes, right it's now, difficult, right? and yeah. even when you read what they are, it's difficult. It's a little bit like laying out a bill for people and not explaining what the acronyms are. But I think it's important that we 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 look at it, and make it easy for people. Right now, they're doing Sunset, which is evaluating the efficiency of the health and human services uh, agencies. Well, it's confusing e even as a member trying to figure out who's doing what here and, and duplication of effort. So that's one thing I think we have to really be more um, vigilant about. The other thing, and I think uh, many of you have mentioned this, I don't believe that it's, it's right for us to always believe that every single component of women's health is directly linked to the question of termination of a pregnancy. And I think because of that, we may have gone down so many pathways now that uh, it's hard to turn back. I don't believe that every time you, someone mentions they're pregnant, that, that a health care provider automatically says, well, have you thought about keeping it or not keeping it? I, I, I just find that to be offensive to healthcare professionals in general. Second, secondly, I found in our research during the House Bill 2 that the statistics that we do on a termination of pregnancy are not as extensive as I believe we should have because if we're talking about things we need to know actual factual information. I do believe it's important for the patient to understand that these statistics are being taken and they need to give their permission for that. But for example, there was a form that we saw, and I don't know where it is now, but it said down the page as you submitted was the baby born dead or alive? And I thought, oh my goodness, where was the follow-up there? And so I feel that 
We, we really need to do more and more and more to have a robust, no one's going to agree, or not everyone agrees, but if we don't have the facts and the data behind what we're talking about, sometimes we may not be making the best decisions. I appreciate Dr. Duell saying that about the Maryland model. Was that what you were talking yeah. about? And that's unfortunate because I think when you do have collaboration at any level, sometimes you come out with a better decision piece. Um, Molly, you wanted to. I just want a quick follow-up. I yes. mean, do you feel like uh, in the last legislative session, members of your party went too far? I couldn't dare speak for every member of my party. That would be a complete ridiculous no, broad but do, you feel, do you feel that some of them went too far? I, I will say that for me, I voted for House Bill 2. It's, it's a, a part of public record that certain things I had a concern about. But to say members of my party going too far, I think people vote what they believe is right. I think they vote what they believe is their experience. And we have 150 different opinions, so um, maybe 150 people had variability in what they said. I, I, I don't think this is necessarily, even though it manifests that way in passage of legislature, I don't see women's health necessarily as a partisan issue. Ms. White, do you have legislation pre-written on your way in the door? Maybe. <laughs> what, uh, I mean, talk us through what you would like to see in your ideal universe, what type of legislation you would like to file on this Well, topic. first of all, when I speak on women's health, I like to refer to it as cardiovascular disease, infections, injuries, you know, those things that affect women. And I do believe we need funding in that kind of health care. We need funding in preventative health care. Uh, I'm big on prevention, to tell you the truth. But... Uh, as far as any legislation for pro-life things, uh, we've been talking about some stuff. Personally, I would like to see uh, tighter restrictions um, for parental consent. Um, I know there's a lot of loopholes, and uh, young girls are going to um, judges and getting rubber-stamped uh, permission to have an abortion without their parents' consent, and knowing how traumatizing it is for young women to make that decision without parental involvement uh, is a very, very high, and I think we should make it where parents have a lot more say-so over their, women, their daughter's health care, no matter how old she is. If she's a minor, it's their right to have a decision in their health care or their abortion decision. Let's not put the two together. Would you like to see greater restrictions on when abortions can occur, say once a heartbeat is present versus? Well, for me personally, um, the the later you are in your pregnancy, the higher risks are involved, health risks uh, to your reproductive health and to psychologically. So sure. So if women want to make the best choices and have the best outcomes, uh, the earlier in their pregnancy, uh, they have less risk of physical risk, but the psychological risks are the same, whether women agree or not. The research shows it. Um, so if you want to look at what's best for women and health-wise as far as during an abortion, I think restricting the, the time frame is always the best. Representative Alvarado, do you have concerns about this type of legislation given the more conservative makeup that we're likely to see uh, in the legislature and particularly in the Senate? Absolutely. I'm, I'm scared for Texas women. I think, uh, as I said earlier, I think HB2 was the most harmful to women in Texas history. And maybe I missed it somewhere, but I just didn't see the, the need for the, this far-reaching legislation to impose all these requirements on clinics. Um, I just, I don't recall that we had, you know, many complaints about these type of uh, clinics and needing more regulation. I mean, what... What puzzles me is that on one side you have people that say we overregulate too much. There's too much government. But yet, when it comes to women's health, it, for some, you just can't get enough regulation and enough government inside a woman's uterus. That's, I mean, I don't understand the argument. Again, if you look at the economics of it, it doesn't make sense. If you look at prevention, and she says um, future colleague is about prevention, then the cuts to the women's health program close clinics and cut funding for women to get preventive screenings for uh, cancer, breast cancer, cervical cancer, STDs. Who's against that? I just want to ask one follow-up before we move. Uh, 
as far as the funding mechanism is concerned for women's health, is there any family planning funding solution that is acceptable to you all if it does not include Planned Parenthood? Oh, yes. So if Planned Parenthood were still not allowed to receive any state funds for family planning? Planned Parenthood, if it was Planned Parenthood under the provisions of no abortions funded by state dollars. But let's say it was just no dollars. Planned Parenthood. Is well, there then, a family planning funding solution? What, that what happens there is, is that the network, the network of facilities that are necessary to provide for the growing population of the state has uh, been disrupted and dismantled, even with the Planned Parenthood facilities that had zero abortions that were provided there. And, uh, uh, and we're already seeing that in the valley, uh, a woman, you know, just round trip, it's about a thousand miles. And most of these women, let's keep in mind, are low-income Medicaid women. And if we look at a comparison just of requirements of the state of Texas that has a poor history of providing for those who are in most need, especially financially, we can look to the through litigation just on the children. And in that litigation, there was a requirement that you could not, as a state, refuse to have specialized services in greater than 70 miles from the patient. So why would we make a law in which it would dismantle the network, close down facilities, prevent doctors from being able to practice unless they have rights within 30 miles, knowing that the Catholic hospital started, and you can look at Dallas, where they started eliminating the admitting rights of doctors once this went into place. And now women you know, would have to go 1,000 miles round trip from the valley. And in some other parts of the state, it may not be as far, but 250 miles or more, that's a long ride, especially when they don't have capital metro buses that go that far. Part, the poorest parts of our state for women have been hurt tremendously. Uh, the Rio Grande Valley, one-third of the women's health centers have been shut down as a result of HB2. So you have, again, more women that are going without um, services. Well, again, I want to separate women's health as far as abortion as far as other health services. So I don't remember how many abortion clinics were in Texas. I don't have the exact numbers. But there's far many more other uh, health agencies or health clinics, in fact, 2,421 located around the state of Texas that provide family planning services and other women's health. They're not just focused on birth control, STDs, and abortion, but they're focused on other women's health issues too. So I would, I would not uh, be in favor of supporting any, uh, uh, with funding, any agency that provides abortion. That should be a woman's choice, and that should be what she wants to do. Now, I know, you know, Prior to uh, dealing with my abortions uh, emotionally, psychologically, I was a very pro-choice uh, person. You know, I had to defend what I did. I was on the pro-choice side. But once I started looking at how it really affected me as a woman and as a human being, I realized that that choice was the worst thing I could have ever done. If it had not been suggested to me uh, by a doctor who I thought, okay, if it's safe, it's legal, got to be okay, and been lied to, I would have never had that abortion. If it hadn't been convenient, I would have never had that abortion. If somebody would have said, Molly, congratulations, you'll be a great mother, I'd be a mother of a 32-year-old son right now. So I don't think by making abortion very accessible is going to reduce the numbers. You know, the pro-choice side always say we want abortion safe and rare. Well, it cannot be safe if we don't have the same standards in abortion clinics as other medical facilities have that provide surgical operations. So that's not safe. And if we want it to be rare, we can't have an abortion clinic on every corner. And if it wasn't legal, let me tell you, I would never have had an illegal abortion. So we have to look at what's the best way. Why do women have abortions in the first place? Because we're afraid that we won't be able to afford the baby. Well, why can't we provide more help for her? so that she can afford and can have that baby. If she's in college, why can't we have centers here at UT, childcare centers, so a woman can have, be a mother and still go to school? I mean, there's other things that we can do to meet the needs of the women and why they're having abortions. Instead of saying, well, you know, we know you can't afford it, go ahead and have the abortion. We need to look at other ways to help women. 
I wanted to address why we think physicians ought to have hospital credentials. One, as someone who's practiced in Greenville for now 28 years. Um, I was three years short. Sorry about that. That's right now. It's, uh, time goes fast. Uh, I have taken care of women who had an abortion in, in Dallas, and then they had problems, and they couldn't get in touch with anybody at the clinic. And the other thing was the way our, our licensure system is in Texas, and uh, you can get a medical license, and you've got to do 25 hours of CMA, but uh, you can lose your skills. And a hospital credentialing system uh, allows, it's a, a, a committee of peers that look at a physician's credentials, and that protects the women by having physicians who have the proper credentials to do a surgical procedure. Uh, I've known two uh, doctors who did abortions uh, early on as a resident, and one man was in his dotage, and another was a guy who couldn't pass his boards, and, and they were doing abortions. I didn't feel either one of them was confident to be doing it, but now the hospital credential system of any hospital is such that that shows a certain amount of, of competency and continuing medical education and safety uh, to the patient, and I would submit, and I understand the inconvenience of travel, but people do have to sometimes go across the state for certain medical procedures, but it would be better to go a thousand miles to see a competent physician than to go 30 miles and see one that's not. Yeah. You know, um, Kanye West's mother died um, on a um, plastic surgery table to enhance her body. Uh, and, you know, Joan Rivers, there's some questions about, you know, that outpatient procedure she had in which a biopsy was done on her vocal cords. Uh, there are lots of women who go in and they have all of these, uh, and maybe some men too, um, plastic surgery that's done. This, you know, and we hear a lot more about deaths from that, but we're not putting the same requirements on those types of facilities. And those are elective procedures as well. And I don't recall, if, and I'm sure you've done a lot of research on this, but the medical community, I don't recall any medical uh, associations uh, coming forward and saying, yes, we want this. This is a great thing. Right. I don't think we, I think we heard the opposite. Correct. You heard physicians on both sides of the issue. Mm -hmm. uh, the state's leading medical groups, right? The Texas Medical Association right. and the Texas Hospital Association. We're not in favor of this legislation. North right. National OBGYN uh, Association. They the were all opposed to this. Association. I don't they recall. They also heard any. from their members about the physician. I mean, that's the, that's the way associations always are. But there were physicians on both sides of, of that issue. Well, we're getting close to opening this up to Q&A, but I just want to ask, you know, we're watching states, even very conservative states, taking sort of different stances on gay marriage than they used to, on pot legalization than they used to, all of these, you know, hot button issues. Are we going to be having the same debate here in Texas in 50 years? Hopefully not. <laughs> 50 years. Good. 50 years, boy, that, that's a hard bar to, um, uh, to, to climb. I will say that the medical cannabis, and of course we learned in public health that uh, that's the proper term, and marijuana is not what we should be saying. I won't get into that, but that's been introduced several sessions now. And there has been widespread interest in it, uh, on both ends of the spectrum, certainly Colorado, who is wide open now, are seeing some issues that they did not expect. Uh, I'm not aware of the bill, I don't know, Senator Gould might be able to say, the bill ever having come to the floor. Uh, it may have, but I don't think no, so. No, so well, there's my question's around women's health. I mean, is this the debate that we're still going to be having, you know, decades? In 50 oh, years, when Texas turns blue, um, <laughs> not that it's going to take us that long to turn blue, but we will be blue in, within that time frame for sure. So I, I don't think you ever check yeah. the box off of a controversial issue. So that's part of your question. 50 years, I think, probably so, unless we're all robots with, you know, chips implanted and we don't have to do things like we do now in traditional ways, but I do think in the medical cannabis situation that uh, it's a fascinating discussion, and certainly when you talk to patients that come to the capital about it, it's, it's very compelling what they say. So I think that decision will, or that discussion will go on we'll save for that, a long time. that panel for next year. Yeah, we're not, <laughs> I, and I think women and men both might have an interest in that. I'm right. 
I can't speak. Let's open it up to Q&A. Again, these are um, questions. They end with a question mark. They aren't statements. Uh, so please come up to the microphone, and we've got about uh, 10 or 15 minutes for it. Go ahead. Yes, ma'am. Hi. You'll be relieved this is not about abortion, actually. Um, <laughs> I came because it was Women's Health Services. So um, we have an issue that we didn't accept the Medicaid expansion, and um, there's just lack of funding for a lot of preventative care for low-income women. So my bug in your ear and question is that the funding for BCCS, uh, Breast Cancer and Cervical Cancer Services of Texas, keeps dropping. It's dropping every year. And we don't, these women don't have access to mammography services, cervical cancer screenings through Medicaid, which other states now do. And then our legislators now cutting BCCS services as well. So in, as well as they're not even addressing us under 40. I, if I was low income, I'm blessed that I have health insurance, but if I was low income, I couldn't even go and get a mammogram and get it covered. And we have women that are inflammatory breast cancer, all sorts of other cancers that we're seeing in our clinic that have this problem. So my question to you is, why is BCCS funding dropping when we won't accept Medicaid expansion? Uh, well, I could address that because I'm on Article 2 of Appropriations, and I'm sure that Representative King could as well. But uh, in the 12 years, 10, 12 years, however long it's been, that I've been vice chair of the Subcommittee on Health and Human Services, that funding uh, strategy has dropped because funding was being moved to other areas and there were being decisions that were being made uh, by uh, individuals unaffected, uh, by uh, genders unaffected, by this concern Which who one? didn't see. <laughs> There's only. Oh, let's not go into that. Okay. Um, that, that did not see it as a heightened issue. I, specific, I have specifically raised the concern during discussions on the Department of State Health Services budget related to these strategies that there was the population increase, absolutely, we needed to, to see the funding increase to be able to deal with these concerns as well that this it impacts certain communities, especially demographics, in a disproportionate manner, which is a reason that I push for disproportionality and disparity uh, review and, and funding uh, protocols so that we could address these concerns because there's no reason that uh, African-American women should be the number one uh, demographic dying from breast cancer when there is no statistics that shows that Breast cancer in African-American women is greater than that of Anglo women or Hispanic women. I could, and I could go on and talk about any of the other uh, health concerns that are addressed there. But primarily, if you're having to go and find $30 million to, uh, to supplant into the women's health care program because a philosophical view refuses you from wanting to work with uh, health and human service on the federal level because they will require you to allow Planned Parenthood into your funding strategies, then you don't have money to fund other women's health care programs. And that's exactly what's happening. Shifting of funds to try and fund yeah. just a little bit so looks like you're doing an something. an additional well, bug. Please remember in this next who, session. There were those okay. of us who funded and wanted to fund comprehensive care for women and men. We've been trying to do that in, in different ways, and we've been fought both by the left and by the right, and many of us who advocated to do that are not getting reelected. Yeah. Just but remember us under 40. I just wanted to separate. say, please remember us under 40 when you go okay. into this next session. Questions? Let's, next question from the audience, please. Um, so one thing that's been missing from the conversation about women's health care is forced and coerced sterilization. So there have been over 65,000 women across the country who have been sterilized against their will or full knowledge either because of the state or other actors. And therefore they've lost their right to life to actually have a child. So why haven't pro-life supporters and organizations spoken out against this? And we particularly see this in California, but it's across the country, why haven't pro-life organizations and supporters stood by those women and said this is wrong, they should have the ability to have a child? Well, we have been talking about it because it does go on. In fact, when I had my last child, my daughter, um, I had a young uh, woman just gave birth to her third child in the bed that shared a room with me. 
and she was single and had her third child, and the doctors came in and convinced her to have her tubes tied. And I was appalled by it. I was angry. And when they left, I looked at her. I said, please don't do that. You're only 21 years old. I said, you might get married and want to have more children. I said, please think about this before you do it. But since it was paid by, I guess, Medicare or Medicaid, she went ahead and had her tubes tied, thinking that it was the best thing for her. And it just crushed me. But it is a very... um, a very passionate topic. I think we should get together and really bring that to light and, and work on that. That's something well, that's I, I've been involved in women's health for 28 years in Texas. I've never heard of a woman being sterilized against her wishes. It wasn't against her wishes, but they convinced her to do it, and, and I was very upset about it because she was so young. The dilemma I ran into was with girls that were under 21 who had had two, three, four babies, and that's another issue. But Medicaid, in fact, when I delivered at first, Medicaid didn't pay for prenatal care and delivery. And we first came back to Texas in 86. But then when they did, if you were under 21, Medicaid wouldn't pay for a tubal, even when a woman wanted it. They had to wait. And fortunately, we had a family planning clinic and could deal with that until they became 21. I actually dealt with the opposite of what you described. But I hope that's not happening and especially when it came to hysterectomy, I carried legislation in 1999 which successfully passed the legislature requiring that an OBGYN or a doctor or whomever, they had to not only uh, read to the patient but explain to the patient the difference between a hysterectomy uh, and what it would do because just a survey of the legislature and staffers were not aware that a hysterectomy would cause sterilization. We successfully, bipartisan uh, effort, passed that legislation and mandated that it has to be expressed in Texas. I applaud you on that. Take a question out here. Hi. Um, so what I keep hearing, um, and I think what the public always hears, is um, either you have an abortion or you don't have an abortion. But unfortunately, um, I don't. We don't. I don't think. Um, that the other part of it ever gets as much attention, and that um, is that there's different alternatives to that, meaning adoption and crisis pregnancy centers um, that are there and um, trying to at least thrive, but um, maybe it's not getting the same recognition that it should. So is there any, um, on both sides, is there anything that you guys are um, in regards to adoption and um, crisis pregnancy centers that you guys um, are thinking about legislative-wise, of funding. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think currently we are funding some of the pregnancy resource centers, which is an alternative to abortion. There's also, I don't know how much credence people put in license plates, but there's a Choose Life license plate that talks about uh, adoption. So I I think there's a lot of things. Does it get as much hype and press as abortion? Probably not. But I do think that there is a a turn towards trying to help with some of that resources. Um, I, I'm appalled that anyone would, going back to that other question, that people would be forced in any, to anything regarding their own physical health. But evidently, that's been their experience. I, I can't corroborate that. I've never heard of it. But I, I think that uh, there, there is a trend going towards that, and certainly not only just adoption with regards to people using that as an a alternative to having a termination, but also adoption in other realms, such as um, children in foster care uh, system and other things, to encourage people to reach out to uh, not only perhaps offer their child for adoption, but certainly taking in a child and adopting one that so desperately needs a forever home. Crisis family, uh, crisis uh, uh, pregnancy centers have been addressed and have been abused. Reviewed. As a matter of fact, funding from the women's health care strategy was moved yeah, yeah. to uh, allow for crisis pregnancy centers to uh, be uh, funded. Roughly $10 million was provision that was uh, put into place by Warren Chisholm uh, during uh, the, the legislative process. As well, uh, there were RFPs from the De- uh, Department of State Health Services for crisis pregnancy centers. There was a review that was requested of the effectiveness of those centers, and the Texas Tribune actually uh, did uh, some research on it and found that it was this organization had received greater than $3 million but didn't have a single telephone or a single desk, nor was providing services to a single individual. 
And we attempted to do some research on that. And there was a lot of exposure that was made um, on the ineffectiveness of the CPCs because they weren't providing services. Instead, uh, they were just, they, when they talked to a woman, it was all about frightening her about an abortion. That's number one. Number two, as it relates to adoption and placing the children up for adoption, during HB2, I put up an amendment on the House floor requesting that if you force a woman to have a child against her wishes, then the state of Texas would pay mm -hmm. in full for that child until that child turned 18. If it was an issue that the woman wanted to have an abortion uh, because of financial needs, which usually is not the case. A lot of times it's rape, incest, or some other reason. But if she had to have that baby, then the state would provide for her wholeheartedly. The opposition uh, voted that amendment down. Now, I adopted a child. I oversee and chair the Select Committee on Child Protection. I oversee the Department of Family Protective Services budget in, in Article 2 of the Appropriations Bill and have done so for eight years. I make sure that they are funded and fully funded uh, as much as possible to deal with the issues and concerns that are necessary. But this legislature is not, was not uh, for those who were in control and those who <coughs> attempted to frighten others who were trying to think logically from supporting measures that would support a woman and a child uh, who was born uh, because HB2 was put into place. One of the things that we do at the state, though, is foster children that are adopted, um, they get Medicaid until they turn 18. So we do provide help. 26. 20, 26, excuse me. And uh, that helps the adoption process. But people in general tell me adoption is too cumbersome, uh, red tape-wise, and too expensive, <coughs> not only this state, but all over the not at all. We do need to make it easier and more affordable. We need to make it easier We're going to wrap up. We're going to take this one more question, and then we'll be on our way. I just want first. I want to say thank you, Representative Dukes Navarro, for your heroism. I'm a mother of two, and I had an abortion. And my mother, I'm the youngest of five. Before I was born, my mother self-induced. Back in the days before Roe v. Wade. Back in the days when women died all the time, and she would have left four little girls without a mother. And what I want to know is, you talked about having um, HB2 required surgical facilities, right? Mm -hmm. So I had an abscess, and I had my tooth pulled, and it was an oral surgeon that did it. And I don't recall that they are required to have the same kind of ambulatory facilities as is required for a much less invasive, much less risky what's procedure. Your what's your question? My, my question is, um, is it required? And the other question is, what do you do if your uh, clinic, there's no hospital within 30 miles. Or the hospital's a Catholic hospital. What do you do if your clinic is, without, is not within 30 miles? Of, I mean, the answer to that is probably that... She said, why didn't dental right. facilities that do those type right. of procedures have to be ACS certified? What do you do when... Uh, you don't have a facility within 30 miles. And what do you do when it's a Catholic hospital that's not going to grant those rights? So somebody else can answer those Well, questions. having a tooth pulled yeah. is a little different than having a high-powered suction machine inserted into your uh, uterus and sucking out a baby. So it's a little bit different. I would prefer to have a, a, a clinic that uh, can meet any kind of emergency needs, like a perforated uterus, um, uh, uh, hemorrhaging, any, a heart attack, anything that went on. So I would prefer to have a center that I know will be able to take care of whatever emergency situation. But comparing your teeth being pulled to a baby being aborted is like comparing apple to oranges. 
I, I and I think one, I think I'm more women familiar. though would prefer and, to go to a place that has better <laughs> that has better health care for them than what's been. My uncle's a veterinarian, been one for 40 years. Veterinary clinics have higher standards than abortion clinics do. And okay. why are you requiring it for somebody to, get, to take a pill? Well, out afterward. <laughs> thank, let's, uh, please thank our panelists for being under the firing squad here.